0: Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host Tim Patrick and this is episode 133, October 2nd to October 8th, 1863. Last week we concluded our two-parter on the Battle of Chickamauga. Now that we have the battle out of the way, we need to get into the aftermath. This week, we will also have a couple of other scattered events. We need to talk about submerged vessels for a little, just to check that box off. In addition, we will head to Kansas for the massacre at Baxter Springs, and we will fight at the Battle of Sterling's Plantation in Louisiana. First, though, let's stay in Georgia and Tennessee. Of course, before we do that, we have some new Patreon content as we roll into October. And this is going to be a memoir review. And this one is actually going to be written by James Harvey Kidd. And Kidd serves with Custer and Custer's Michigan Brigade, the Wolverines, right? We talked about them when we talked Gettysburg, of course. And they're going to be continuing on in our story as we get into... 1864 on Trevilian Station as well. And there's a great account of that battle here. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, we haven't really done too much in terms of cavalry yet, and especially in these memoirs. So we get a good perspective from a trooper here. And uh, again, if that's something that interests you, we do have a link to the Patreon in the show description. And all those proceeds go toward the general upkeep of the show. I want to start this week by, of course, wrapping up the Battle of Chickamauga. Now, many will be critical of Bragg and his inability to follow up on the victory, and they would be partially right. But there are some things we need to mention when discussing Bragg and his command. The 21st of September would be wasted, with the Union Army withdrawing and the Confederates not really doing much at all. Rosecrans would pull Thomas out of Rossville, which is another puzzling decision. The Federals could have had a good defense at Missionary Ridge, but Old Rosie was a shattered commander. I would also venture that Chattanooga was still key, and if the Confederacy was to retake the city, it might be spun as being the positive despite the staggering amount of casualties. Key supply trains were protected by the Union-mounted arm, which included the Lightning Brigade and the cavalry, saving those from captured by ineffectual rebel counterparts. Now Forrest would famously tell Bragg that the Union troops were in full flight and that he needed to follow it up. But they were not quite in full flight, as the wizard in the saddle would like you to believe. Thomas was organized and retreating in good order. Indeed, Forrest was rebuffed from attempting to take the Rossville Gap of Missionary Ridge, the Union troops being in force there. What was more, supplies were an issue for the now large Army of Tennessee, despite some units now departing back to Johnston. Bragg would move his army into position as the Federals began to improve their earthworks. It would be the stuff of legend that Lafayette McClaws could have attacked and exploited the demoralized enemy, but in reality, an attack on the city probably would have failed. We actually have a great example of something that kind of gets glossed over in the annals of uh, Nathan Bedford Force. He actually tries to lead his cavalry at the city, and they uh, get quickly turned around. So that's something that we do know that happened, and McClaws probably would have fared no better. The opportunity had been the battle, the aftermath not so much. By the 23rd, the Siege of Chattanooga would begin as Joe Wheeler would be dispatched to disrupt supplies coming into the city. I want to get into some personnel changes that will happen on both sides in two weeks' time, but for now, just know that both armies will settle in for the long haul. That brings us to discussing the significance of Chickamauga. As mentioned, this is the second in terms of casualties and the largest battle of the West. It's not really the West. you look at Georgia, it's, Georgia's not really a Western state. Yet It's not something you necessarily think, but uh, of course, everything that is not Virginia is sort of the West. This would be the, the secondary theater, we can also say, of the war. It would definitely leave a sort of disappointed taste for both sides on the Federal side, we have Rosecrans, who had conducted two bloodless campaigns. When the Army advances beyond Chattanooga, it is apparent he needs to come up with a new plan. He left his army open to defeat in detail, which could have happened at, say, Macklemore's Cove. The Ohio General is going to run himself ragged, which could explain why he makes some mistakes during the battle, notably on the 20th, with Wood's division leaving the line. Could the battle have been joined again on the 21st? It is possible, but I think there would have been a change in tactics on the part of the Confederacy. On the other side, Bragg failed in his plans to cut off the enemy from Chattanooga. This was a realistic possibility, and had things been executed better, it might have succeeded. That's a common theme with Bragg. if His plans had gone the way he thought they were, or you know, these subordinates who are obviously failing him, they're giving him guff when he tries to come up with a grand attack strategy. So you start to wonder whether it's actually the subordinates or whether it's him himself. But there are at least some positives when it comes to Bragg. If his attack had jumped off right away, maybe it succeeds. Maybe it doesn't, right? He had a pretty sound idea of what he needed to do and you know, if you didn't have Wilder's guys or Menti's cavalry there uh, where he could have actually cut off the army, it's hard to say. It's always difficult, and we've mentioned it in this podcast before. It's always difficult to actually eliminate an army in the field, and it very rarely happens. And even a part of the army, so even eliminating Negley's division, that would have been probably a pretty tall task. Casualties for the Confederates were not acceptable. The extreme loss of life showed little in terms of results, thus morale would continue to be low, even as the Army of Cumberland was trapped. I will say that two tactical situations were certainly reinforced. Rapid firing weapons were definitely on full display, and had Weiler's men remained on the field, they could very well have turned the tide. Secondly, fixed positions, even if they were crude, were better options for defensive action. Hazen will write that while he suffered heavy casualties defending the Round Forest at Stones River, during the 20th of September he suffers very little, mostly because of the breastworks constructed. Let's talk more about takeaways. Confederate cavalry was certainly flawed during the battle. Forrest does not behave as a Corps commander. He accompanies smaller-scale units as opposed to centralizing his command, dividing his forces in an instance where they could have been useful in setting up to flank the Union Army before the 18th. Infantry runs into Wilder and Minty as a result. Forrest present, but not contributing. After September 18th, it is interesting to see Dan McCook and his lone brigade get behind the Confederates, essentially. Inadequate pickets were the culprit. It is hard to imagine that Jeb Stuart, even given all his flaws, could have been so careless. Forrest would continue to be lackluster throughout, essentially getting Hector's brigade destroyed and not really providing anything to the conflict. Dibrell's brigade, his former command, only lists some 30 casualties, although they were engaged on several parts of the field. Wheeler is also going to fail to shine. Now, especially during the battle, in the last two episodes, you probably are saying, well, I don't even remember saying Wheeler's name, and that's because we didn't. Now, we did not cover the cavalry action on the southern end of the field last week, and I am sure some of you may have screamed into the void of your podcast device in anguish that I had overlooked a large-scale cavalry action, more of a rarity, in this theater of the war. But fret not my listeners, this was all part of the plan— because it does highlight Wheeler's failure. On the 20th, Wheeler is given the directive to move on Glass Mill, a crossing that would give the Rebels access to Crawfish Springs. The latter had been the headquarters of Rosecrans, and currently a depot and hospital. Facing his cavalry under Wharton and Martin was that of George Crook. Crook had been tasked with protecting this area, but the terrain left him at a disadvantage. Furthermore, his 900 or so men were outnumbered by two divisions of rebel cavalry. What was working in his advantage was that the crossing would not allow for immediate deployment of the enemy horsemen. Crook would delay the rebels, but it would not be for long. In fact, he would have to stop a regiment from making an ill advised charge at the last minute. This move intended as a feint, but would have actually led the horsemen directly at the Confederates, supported by artillery. With Crook moving away, Wheeler would capture the stores and hospital at Crawfish Springs. Bragg would then instruct him to move on Lee and Gordon's mills, but the cavalry commander instead of taking the direct route would move back across Chickamauga Creek. Now Longstreet would ask for Wheeler to assist in pursuing the enemy and supporting his attacks on Horseshoe Ridge, but Wheeler would have conflicting orders from Bragg. So there was a major opportunity missed here by the rebel horsemen. Had they been present on the field to pursue the shattered commands of McCook and Creniton as they left the field, things might have been very, very different. Maybe they capture Rosecrans. Maybe they capture Charles Dana. I don't know. There's all these things that are on the table, but they just don't happen because there's poor communication and poor execution. Now, I do want to mention that I have seen several comparisons between the Battle of Chickamauga and Gettysburg. This could partially be because Chickamauga does essentially become the Gettysburg of the South, being preserved as the first national military park. But I think there are still more comparisons we can make. Most notably for me, I think Chickamauga is essentially how Gettysburg could have ended if Lee succeeds on the third day. Tremendous casualties at the expense of the field, and a crippling blow that would make further action in the campaign questionable. Who is to say that if the 2nd Corps breaks, there is not someone like a George Thomas, for instance, that will allow for a renewed stand, slowing the momentum. Cavalry action on the first day will define the battle, just as it does at Gettysburg. Without Minty and Wilder, Bragg perhaps makes it through and onto Crittenden's flank. On the flip side, at Gettysburg, we have Buford slowing the Confederates enough to save the high ground. That being said, at Chickamauga, there probably certainly would have been some continued action, but if the Confederates are able to seize the high ground at Gettysburg, there's pretty good evidence that no Battle of Gettysburg happens, and it becomes, say, the Battle of Pipe Creek or or Frederick, Maryland, or somewhere else where there could have been a battle. In both cases, James Longstreet is not impressive We know too well his lackluster performance in Pennsylvania, and now we have another example. Longstreet fails to name someone past Hood and could have been more proactive in exploiting the breakthrough. Now, you would think that having just gone through this at Gettysburg, Longstreet would take a look at his attack and say, Wow, you know, if something happens to Hood, just as it did at Gettysburg, that could be a problem, so maybe I should fix that, but he does not. He really does very little except get Heinemann and then Preston's divisions to add weight into ineffectual attacks. His battle lines have been given credit, but these well could have been out of necessity of the terrain rather than a grand column by design, and in fact he does not mention it in any of his after action reports. In both situations it is clear that the Confederates would rather fight a defensive battle. That's certainly what Longstreet wanted in July, and Bragg would rather make Rosecrans attack him. But in both cases, the strategic advantage is given to the Confederacy, which necessitates the need for offensive action. It is interesting to think about how maybe these engagements, although one a Confederate victory and one a Union victory, are not quite so different. On October 6, we have action in Kansas known as the Baxter Springs Massacre. Now, Baxter Springs in 1863 would contain a log and earth fort named Fort Blair and one blockhouse. Baxter Springs was important not only for the spring that there sat, but also because it sat on the military road, key to transportation in the area. This station was commanded by Lieutenant James Pond, and manned primarily by soldiers from the 2nd Kansas Colored Infantry, as well as some white soldiers who were sick. Additionally, there was a small mounted contingent. On the morning of the 6th, this mounted arm would go out to Forage, leaving the infantry behind. Unfortunately for all involved, it just so happened that William Clark Quantrill and his men would be heading down the military road, Their destination being Texas. If you recall from our talks about guerrillas, they normally used Texas for winter quarters and not always being welcomed by the inhabitants. Seeing the foraging party and waylaying some of them, Quantrell would decide to attack the fort. Using his lieutenants Greg and Poole in a two-pronged assault, he would try to use his superior numbers to overpower the garrison. Members of the 2nd Kansas as well as the sick troops would pitch in to defend Fort Blair from their earthworks. Lieutenant Pond would receive the Medal of Honor by firing a single howitzer at the fort. His citation would read, For extraordinary heroism on 6 October 1863 while serving with Company C, 3rd Wisconsin Cavalry, in action at Baxter Springs, Kansas. While in command of two companies of cavalry, First Lieutenant Pond was surprised and attacked by several times his own number of guerrillas, but gallantly rallied his men and, after a severe struggle, drove the enemy outside the fortifications. First Lieutenant Pond then went outside of the works and, alone and unaided, fired a howitzer three times, throwing the enemy into confusion and causing him to retire. Reportedly, his brother Homer Pond also received a Medal of Honor during the war, making the Ponds the only set of brothers to have both received the distinction. Pond would become a lecture manager after the war, working with some pretty big names, including Mark Twain. In 1863, Pond and his men would fight hard. All of them knew, all too well, that if they were captured, most of them would receive no mercy at the hands of the guerrillas. Already, an officer had been caught outside the lines and executed, along with Pony Express rider James Fry. Now, casualties at this point were very low, Quantrill moving his men away from the well-defended fort. In an ultimate case of wrong place, wrong time, a Union wagon train was spotted by the Raiders. This happened to be James Blunt and his retinue moving to Fort Smith, where he was planning on establishing his headquarters. If you recall, Fort Smith had fallen and now it was used as a base for future operations deeper into Arkansas or Oklahoma. Some of Quantrill's men were wearing blue uniforms and so they were able to approach the column, with the remainder coming out from their cover to attack. Many of the cavalry supporting would flee, with members of the 3rd Wisconsin attempting to make a stand. Some of the men were killed while attempting to surrender. Blunt actually brought along a band whose wagon attempted to flee. The band, made mostly of Germans, was killed, adding to the massacre. Now, there are several reasons why this might have occurred beyond just bloodlust. The band was made of ethnic Germans, which, as you might recall, the guerrillas are not fond of. I've also seen that according to a guerrilla, one of the band members acquired a firearm and shot at one of the rebels whereas the raiders had been content with letting the non-combatants live. We may have mentioned this before, but if you were a band member, you were probably going to be a corpsman uh, after you were done playing your instrument uh, during a battle situation. So these would have been um, kind of on par with, say, doctors. Uh, So you're not trying to kill these individuals. It's hard to really tell, which is true but regardless, 103 men were killed by Quantrill's band, including a handful of civilians. War correspondent James O'Neill was one of the slain, along with the already mentioned Fry. Samuel Curtis's son and adjutant to Blunt was killed, but Blunt was able to escape. I have seen where Blunt's mount was fresher than the attackers and thus able to outrun them. And I've also seen that he was dressed in civilian clothing, which may have helped him to get away. This would have been a particularly big prize for Quantrell. You remember how James Blunt is a Kansan, and anybody who is considered to be on par with, say, a Jayhawker, uh, that's going to be a big catch for any gorilla. So Blunt definitely would have had a target on his back. The bloody work being done, Quantrill turned back to the fort, but by this time many of the men were drunk off captured booze. Bloody Bill Anderson would wish to press the attack, but Quantrill was against it. The friction will eventually lead to Quantrill having less and less power. When George Todd draws a gun on him and Quantrell relents, he will lose all credibility amongst his men. Baxter Springs would thus end, with Quantrell and his band moving on. I may sound like a broken record, but this is an example of the violence that we have seen in this region of the war and will continue to do so. It's also a great example of blockhouses and earthworks being particularly effective against guerrillas in this region, too. On October 5th, we have an attack on the USS New Ironsides at Charleston Harbor. With the recent gains by the Union forces in the area, it would become more important to search for alternatives in which to break the blockade. By this point, remember the Confederacy is starting to really feel the strain of supply issues and the foreign lifeline that is much more important. In that way, we can point out how the blockade was really playing the long game on the part of the United States Navy. Steaming into the water of the Palmetto State was what some consider to be the most important weapon of the Union Navy. This would be the USS New Ironsides, a 14-gun ironclad. Not only was this vessel armed with 14 11 inch Dahlgren guns, but it was also a seagoing ironclad, the first of its type in the United States Navy. Hopefully you remember us mentioning a while back the HMS Warrior and the French Ironclad the Glory, well now this was the American equivalent. Admiral Goldsboro took the new arrival as his flagship in manning the blockade operations. While the Confederates could not come up with an answer in terms of ships, they could try to be stealthy. There were sea mines who could prove to be effective, but if the Union ships were not finding the mines then maybe it was time to have a mine find them. What I mean by that is the Confederate torpedo vessel, specifically in this case the CSS David, although there were others made throughout the war. The CSS David was a cigar-shaped vessel armed with a ram and 70-pound explosive. While this was metal, it was not an ironclad in the sense that it could take fire. In fact, that was not the point at all. Manned only by a crew of four and burning anthracite coal, the David was intended to be used in the dark, attacking in calm waters undetected. You remember that anthracite coal does not produce a whole lot of smoke, so that is going to be part of the stealth. While most of the David was underwater, it was not fully submerged, but hold that thought because we will get there soon enough. It would be put to the test on October 5th. The David would be spotted as it approached the new Ironsides and receive small arms fire. Pushing on ahead, the Ram would strike the new Ironsides with a loud explosion and giant spout of water. Repairs had to be done by the crew, but other than make a lot of noise, the damage had been minimal. Two sailors would become casualties, with one dying from his wounds. The CSS David, on the other hand, was initially abandoned due to the water getting into the smokestack and extinguishing the fire. This would have been because of the explosion, and it happens to shoot all this water up in the air, and then it comes down into the smokestack. So obviously that's something that the Confederates are going to want to fix next time around. One of the crew was able to get the fire started and thus save the torpedo ram, but not before two of the crew were captured. Overall, the new Ironsides would fight again another day, heading back briefly to the north for repairs. The concept, though, of these attacks, emphasizing on stealth, would be an intriguing concept. Speaking of that, to close out we need to talk about submarines. Now, the American Civil War had the distinction, in terms of naval warfare, of being the first conflict with ironclad vessels engaging one another. But, we also have the first combat submarine usage, probably something that not many people are aware of. Submarines actually go all the way back to the 1500s, and it may surprise you to know there had been some recorded successful attempts. The Civil War is actually not the first era in which a military submersible was designed, one being built, but not used in 1775. But the Civil War will be the first time one is actively engaged in combat, so we should put that disclaimer on there. In the same vein as the CSS David, there needed to be some out of the box thinking in order to break the Union blockade and maybe lessen the advantage that the US Navy has in terms of sheer numbers. As early as 1861, there were plans for a submerging ship on the part of the Confederacy. James McClintock and Baxter Watson were joined by Horace L. Hunley to make this a reality. Hunley had been born in Tennessee, but studied law in New Orleans. He had decided to answer the call for the Confederate government, offering up a cash reward for sinking of enemy ships. Hunley had come from the planter class, and so was able to help fund some efforts. Now in terms of submarines, there were two predecessors, the Pioneer and the American Diver. The Pioneer was tested in Lake Pontitrain, and actually got caught at the bottom. Made with a smaller crew design, she was actually destroyed before it could fall into Union hands upon the capture of New Orleans. Remember, there were other naval projects that met the same fate rather than be captured by Farragut's navy. Moving to Mobile, the inventors receive help from the Confederate military. Originally, the American Diver was designed with a small steam engine for propelling, but not enough power was gained to really steer the vessel. Rather, a hand crank system was used by the crew inside. The American Diver was actually deployed, but she was not successful in destroying a target. Caught in rough waters, she was forced to be abandoned, the crew being saved, and is still somewhere at the bottom of the ocean around Mobile. The CSS Hunley was the third rendition of the submarine designs. The Hunley, taking the name of the benefactor and creator, would be used to tow an explosive, submerged under a target, and then release the device moving away before it could be caught up in the destruction. Manned by 8, 7 to turn the propeller, and 1 to steer, the vessel would be equipped with ballast weights on each end. If you think that maybe this sounds like a great job, if you're claustrophobic, like myself, this would not be a good idea, the Hunley only measuring some 4 feet 3 inches. So if you were cranking, you were doing so sitting, and if you were steering, you were doing so in a kind of crouch. A weight under the vessel would be released to increase the buoyancy. Two hatches and two small conning towers also adorned the Hunley. Its design was very similar to other torpedo boats, but she was referred to as a fish torpedo boat, obviously because of the submersible nature. While still in Mobile, the Confederate Navy was ready for a demonstration. In July, Franklin Buchanan looking on, the Hunley submerged under a coal barge, releasing her explosive, which detonated, destroying the target. Satisfied, the vessel would be transported to Charleston to aid in the efforts to destroy the enemy blockade. In the meantime, it was confiscated by the Confederate military and manned with naval personnel. John Payne, who had commanded the CSS Chicora, would be first to lead. Remember, the Chikora had been involved in previous attempts to lift the blockade. In August of 1863, however, an accident would happen which included the death of five of the crew. Payne and two others survived, but what happened exactly is hard to piece together. I have seen where Payne accidentally stepped on the control that would submerge the vessel, as well as another ship passing by, causing water to get in through an open hatch, and thus sinking the Hunley. Whatever the cause, PGT Beauregard would give control back to Hunley, and efforts began to raise the ship. Hunley, who was not a member of the Confederate Navy, would captain the vessel on the next demonstration run. On October 15th, the Hunley would attempt to submerge under the CSS Indian chief, but would not resurface. On November 7th, the Hunley would be raised, but all the crew, including Hunley, would be dead inside. What exactly happened is again unclear, but it appeared as though one of the ballasts was not properly closed, which had then been allowed to fill the vessel with water. Hunley would be buried with full military honors in Charleston. Despite these failed attempts, we are definitely coming back to the Hunley, so keep that in mind moving forward. We're going to end this week's episode there. This week we had a conclusion to the Battle of Chickamauga. After two episodes, while the aftermath has been wrapped up, there will be more fallout yet to come. Baxter Springs continued the violence in Kansas and Missouri. We had extended naval action with the torpedo attempt on the USS New Ironsides and a good introduction to combat submarines in the CSS Hunley. I will admit to you that I've been sort of fidgeting with the timeline, so there are some events I have skipped over but we'll cover in a future episode. One such event will be next week, where we'll be heading back to Louisiana to figure out what's happening there. Additionally, we need to stop in for a time in Virginia and fight the Battle of Bristow Station. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.